Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will be looking at verses 1 through 3 in just a moment. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. This summer, we have been looking at a sermon series on the subject of the church and with a particular focus on the church's worship and what that involves. And in the first week, we saw that worship mattered because it is the reason for which we were created. It is our ultimate destiny. It is the reason for which we were redeemed. It's commanded in Scripture, but perhaps most importantly, worship is formative. We become like that which we worship. And if we worship the false God, we will become a false version of what we are supposed to be as human beings is when we worship the true God that we are formed into true, complete human beings. Last week, we looked at the subject of defining worship. What is worship? What constitutes worship? We saw a couple of key ideas, the idea of bowing, of showing deference to God in worship, of serving, of giving attention to and being attentive to his desires and what he wants. And in the end, we define church worship as a, as a special time where we show God's worth through our affections and our actions. A special time of showing God's worth through our affections and our actions. Today, we want to look at the question of the who of worship. Who's involved in worship? Worship, And I will tell you right now, if you look at the notes in the bulletin, I was going to try to look at both sides of this. Who is to be worshipped and who should be worshipping? But as you begin to pull it together in the detail, we're not going to get to that second part today. We're not going to deal with the who should be worshipping. I'll give you, I'll boil it down for this. Everyone, all people are created and called to worship, but particularly the redeemed ought to be worshippers. But today we're going to focus on that question of who should be worshipped. Worship. And for that, we're going to start at a place that is most central and fundamental to the biblical concept of who should be worshipped. And that is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. I will remind us that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only fallible rule for faith and for practice. That's why you guys rallied around the opportunity to put Bibles in our pews so that our guests, our visitors, would be able to see the truth of God's Word for themselves. It is only the Bible that is an infallible guide to our lives. And so it must be the only infallible guide to our worship. So hear now the Word of God from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Spirit of God, guide us into understanding your word. Guide my lips that they would speak only what is true. Guide our hearts to understand that truth and to understand how it applies to us and how it should affect us. Guide this whole service that it would be pleasing 
to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This prayer we offer up in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Dennis, Mr. Deacon, get you to bump the temperature up just a little bit. It looks like a few people are kind of chilly as I look out there. Thank you. The guy who's in the robe, under the light, standing much higher than all the rest of you and physically active, you can't use him as a guide for the proper temperature in the room. So my apologies for that. So we'll, uh, we'll allow it to warm up a little bit in here. <clears throat> all right, I'm going to give you three statements, and I want you in your own mind to critique them as true or false. It's a little mini quiz. Don't say anything out loud, but in your own mind, critique these statements as true or false. The first of them is this. Christians and Muslims worship the same God. True or false? Christians and Muslims worship the same God. I've heard it said that, you know, uh, uh, all religions are just different pathways up the same mountain, headed to the same peak, the same high place, just different paths of getting there. True or false? Christians and Muslims worship the same God. The next question is a little tougher. True or false? Christians and Jews worship the same God. Christians and Jews worship the same God. True or false? We give him the same name. Do we worship the same God? And this third one is what my students used to call a trick question. By the way, you know what students mean by that? It's a question that made them think. That's what students mean by a trick question. True or false? Good Christians should never, ever worship a human being. Good Christians should never, ever worship a human being. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Do Christians and Jews worship the same God? Should good Christians ever worship a human being? While you're pondering that, look at John chapter 4. John 4. John 4, Jesus captures, we're going to start in verse 19 in just a moment here. John 4, verse 19. Jesus captures this first commandment and puts it in a slightly different wording, slightly different context. Let me quick, we're jumping in the middle of of an account here, so let me give you the quick summary. Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're traveling through the land of Samaria. Uh, They're tired. They're taking a break. He has sent the 12 into town to get lunch. And he encounters a woman of ill repute at the local watering hole, the local well. He asks her uh, 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 for a drink. He then offers her a drink. She says, you got no way to get anything. He says, well, I offer you living water. There's a back and forth. He then reveals himself as a prophet. I know things about you that I have never been told. She recognizes that he's a prophet, and then in verse 19, she turns to him and says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now you see how this ties back to our, our first commandment, talking about worship. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Notice her attention is on the where of worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Imagine a scenario for just a moment where this afternoon you go out to a restaurant and you see me sitting at a table with a woman. Imagine it. It's not actually going to happen. But imagine that you see this woman, and I'm calling her Becky. She's even wearing Becky's clothes. And I'm showing her the affection that is due to Becky. Now, you know Becky's out of town. So is this true love that I am demonstrating? She's called Becky. She's dressed up like Becky. I'm acting toward her like she is Becky. Doesn't that make it okay? You see the problem when we adore that which maybe is close to the real thing, but is not the real thing. If my love for Becky is to be true, then it must be aimed at the one who is actually Becky. The object of our worship matters. And we have here from the Old Testament, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And even in our catechism, we saw this before me doesn't mean, you know, it's okay to have multiple gods so long as the God of the Bible is number one on the list. No, before me means in his presence. The whole earth is laid open before him. He sees everything. We must have no other gods. Worship is due to God alone. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The creator God. The God of the Bible. And how does Jesus express it at the well? He says much of the same thing. You must worship in truth. If you don't worship what is true and do it truly... You're not worshiping it. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what mountain you're on or what temple you're in if it's not done in truth. So let's take a look at this God that we are to be worshiping. And I will give a heads up to the note takers. We're going to go through this list three times. So you don't want to use up all the space on the first pass, because we're going to go back through each of these again. Let's look at this God that is to be the one who is worshipped. I want us to recognize, first and foremost today, that we must worship the triune God. Our worship must be Trinitarian worship. I want to look a little bit about what, why that's true, and then what that means. So first of all, the why that's true. You know, we talk a lot about the fact that God is a, a one in essence and three in persons, but I think in a practical sense, we lose sight of the fact that our God is triune. Particularly when it comes to the spirit, I think we sometimes forget the need to worship God the Holy Spirit. 
Let's look at the why of this. So first of all, God the Father. Why do we worship God? Well, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks in some more detail, but real quick, a real quick summary. One, he's the creator. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We worship God the Father as the creator. God the Son is also creator. Think about some of the commonalities of God. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him, that is the word, was not anything made that was made. And God the Holy Spirit. I read Genesis 1.1. Do you remember what Genesis 1.2 says? And the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the expanse. Right there at creation, right there at the beginning of it all, we see God the Spirit playing a role. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Creator together. One God in three persons. If the Creator is worthy of worship, then God the Father is worthy of worship. God the Son is worthy of worship. God the Spirit is worthy of worship. What about some of the other qualities for which we worship God? His omniscience. 1 John 3.20 says God knows everything. We just saw the the woman of the well account in John 4 that Jesus knew all about her life. I didn't read that portion, but he reveals himself to her by knowing things about her. He also is omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Father is omniscient, the Son is omniscient, the Spirit is omniscient. When it comes to issues of power, we have a tendency to think of God the Father as the one who carries all the power. And yet, what do we see in the Scriptures? Isaiah 46, no question. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God the Father is omnipotent. But in 1 Corinthians 1.24, we see Jesus Christ described as the power of God. Christ is the power of God. Hebrews 1 describes Christ as the the fullness, the full manifestation of God. The Son is omnipotent. We saw that in his life as he calmed storms and healed uh, uh, the sick. But what of the Spirit? Is the Spirit this sheepish little critter that doesn't have any power? It's interesting, actually, as I started to research this, it was interesting how prevalent this was in the writings of Dr. Luke. The three examples I will pull are all from Dr. Luke's writings. We see in Luke 1, the angel comes to the virgin. What does the angel say to her? The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And then in classic uh, Hebrew uh, dualism, repeats it with slightly different wording. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is the power of the Most High. 
Luke 4, after the temptation of Jesus, Luke records that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. What Jesus begins to do once his temptation is over and his earthly ministry begins to take its, its fully fleshed out form, his miracles, his workings, his, his profound teaching, his teaching with authority was done in the power of the Spirit. And of course, in Acts 1.8, what does Jesus tell the, the disciples, the eleven gathered in the upper room? He says, you, uh, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit is also omnipotent. What of the omnipresence of God? Well, we clearly see, I, I'm not going to go through all the places where we see the omnipresence of the Father, but if you thought about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20, it's Jesus speaking to the disciples, saying, go into all the earth and make disciples, teaching them to obey, baptizing them, and I will be with you always. The Son is omnipresent. And of course, the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 7 says, where shall I go to escape your spirit? This is a rhetorical question. There's no place we can go to escape the spirit of God. The Father is creator. He is uh, uh, omnipotent. He is omniscient and he is omnipresent. The Son is creator. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. The Spirit is creator. He is omnipotent. He is om uh, omnipresent and he is omniscient. They are all God. And if those characteristics and many, 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 many others make any one of them worthy of worship, then it makes all of them worthy of worship. But what are, those are the similarities, those are the commonalities, but what are the distinctives? Have you thought about the distinctives within the Godhead, the economy of the work of God. It is the Father who sent the Son. There's a great reason to worship Him. It is the Father who elects those who will be saved. What a great reason to worship Him. But of course it was the Son who took on flesh it was the Son who became one of us, who walked this earth in the obedience that we owed and died in our place the death we deserved. What a wonderful reason to worship the Son. By the way, in wrestling with those questions I gave you at the beginning, we must recognize that forevermore, the Son is the God-man. He is incarnate. He is in flesh today and will be forevermore. Should Christians ever worship a human being? Yes, when it's Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son in the flesh, we should worship a human being. 
He is, you say, well, we're worshiping his divinity, not his humanity. No, we are worshiping him. He is one person in two natures. How did the Chalcedon, uh, how did the, 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 the ancient church fathers, the, the Chalcedon, uh, uh, Frame it up. They said this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change. Now listen to these last two things. Without division, without separation. It was at the feet of the human Jesus that Peter fell when he worshipped. It was at the feet of a human Jesus at which John fell when he was Uh, given the revelation that closes our New Testament. He is forever the God-man. And he is worthy of worship. What about the distinctives of the Spirit? It is the Spirit who works faith in us, who, who takes hearts of stone and makes them back into hearts of flesh. It is the Spirit who works regeneration. It is the Spirit who wrote the Scriptures. It's the Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds that we might understand the Scriptures. It is the Spirit who prays with us, alongside of us, turning our meaningless prayers into something of value before the Father. Each of the members of the Godhead has played a distinct role in who we are as his redeemed people. And each of those roles is worthy of worship. Take a little bit of a moment here to stop and just focus on this question of should we really worship the Holy Spirit and talk a little bit about where some of the confusion comes from Look at John. We're going to spend quite a few uh, minutes here in John, uh, um, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. So pick one of those. Let's start at John 16, actually, right now. John 16, 14. Some of our confusion arises from some long-standing misunderstandings of the teaching of Jesus. We're in a section of John known as Jesus' farewell address. He is... Uh, uh, kind of giving kind of a last in-depth teaching to the Twelve before he goes to trial, uh, uh, crucifixion, death, and burial. It's called his farewell address. In John 16, 14, Jesus says this. He, and if you look at the context, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He shall glorify me. Some people have looked at that and said, well, see, that's the role of the Spirit, to glorify Jesus. Therefore, we should not glorify the Spirit. He wouldn't want that. His job is to glorify the Son. Well, okay, except that earlier Jesus says that it's his job to glorify the Father. And in Philippians 2, we see where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if Jesus' role is to glorify the Father, then perhaps we aren't supposed to worship Jesus either. But of course, Christianity falls apart immediately if we are not going to worship God the Son. So any logic that would apply to chapter uh, 16, verse 14, that says we shouldn't worship the Spirit, would have to apply to Jesus, and Christianity falls apart. Because it's his job to glorify the Son doesn't mean that it's not our job to glorify him. 
Go back to the previous verse, John 16, 13. And my guess is that most of your translations will have changed this wording. But the King James said it this way. And by the way, this is a good, accurate, literal translation. But it was too often misunderstood. King James says this. Jesus said he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak of himself. And for too long, too many people looked at that and said, well, see, the Spirit does not speak of himself. So we shouldn't speak of him. We shouldn't glorify God, the Spirit. You know, the problem there is if we go back to chapter 14, verse 10, John 14, 10, Jesus says exactly the same thing about himself. I speak not of myself. And we're back to the same problem. If we understand that to mean that the Spirit doesn't speak of himself, and therefore we shouldn't speak of him, then that same logic has to apply to Jesus in chapter 14. Most of your newer translations have gone with a less literal but clearer translation. And they have put the word authority in there. I do not speak of my own authority. The Spirit does not speak on his own authority. Clearly, the Spirit speaks of himself. He wrote this book. If he didn't speak of himself, we wouldn't even know there is a Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.21 says that men of God were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote the Scriptures. Clearly, the Spirit does speak of himself. What Jesus meant when he said that was that the Spirit doesn't speak out of discord with the Father and the Son, and the Son does not speak out of discord with the Father and the Spirit. They are one God, speaking with the same voice. does not mean they should not be glorified individually as persons. And some have made the mistake of seeing the Spirit not as a person at all, but as this impersonal force or a conduit to God. Ephesians 2.18 says we have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 2.18, we have access to one, uh, uh, we have access through, uh, blah, 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 blah. We have access in one spirit to the Father. See, the spirit is simply the conduit to the Father. We glorify only the Father. The spirit is the conduit. The problem with that is that exact same verse, just a few words earlier, also includes Jesus. Through Christ Jesus and in the Spirit, we have access to the Father. Again, if the Spirit is reduced to a mere conduit, then Jesus is reduced to a mere conduit. Let that never be so. We must worship Spirit. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 6, we see, right at the end of 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we are to, to use our bodies to glorify God. Why? Because the Spirit lives in our bodies. The Spirit lives in us. We are to glorify God with our bodies so that we glorify the Spirit of God living in us. 
I spent a little extra time on this question of the Spirit because I think it is a place where we are perhaps a little weaker than we ought to be. Our worship, if it is to be true worship, must be worship of the true God. It must be complete worship. It must be worship that recognizes God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all of this that I've discussed so far, I have been speaking of God as the object of worship. Okay, so real quick refresher in grammar. Remember your subjects and objects in grammar? The subject is the doer of the action. The object is the recipient of the action. Jack threw the ball to Jill. Jack is the subject, the thrower, the doer. The ball and Jill are both objects, different types of objects, recipients of the action. One is thrown, one receives the throw. We have talked about God as the object of worship. We worship the Father as creator, as omniscient, as omnipotent, as omnipresent. The Son as creator, as omniscient, as omnipotent, as omnipresent. The Spirit as creator, as omniscient, as omnipotent, and omnipresent. But we must now also look at the role they play as the subject of worship, the doers of worship. Have you ever thought about that? We could not worship if God did not work in us to worship, if God did not bring about our worship and foster our worship. John 12, there's an interesting account. Jesus is getting ready for his trials and crucifixion. And he is in great distress. And in his distress, he cries out, Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven responds. A voice from heaven said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father glorifies his name. We can provide No glory apart from what God has established for himself. We are at best reflectors of glory. Conduits for the return of glory. God's glory, there is an intrinsic nature to God's glory inherent in who he is. Without that, we would have no hope of worshiping him. John 8, 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, it means nothing, but it is the Father who glorifies me. So the Father glorifies himself, and he glorifies the Son. And there's something interesting in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 8, we see that the ministry of the Spirit is a more glorious ministry than what had gone before under the Old Covenant, Paul says. There is a glory to the ministry of the Spirit, a glory bestowed upon that ministry by the Father through the Son. Each of them generates glory. Each of them glorifies the other. And it's only in that that we have any hope of glorifying any of them at all. 
One of the things we talk about as Christians is being in Christ. We are in his obedience, and therefore we satisfy God's demands. We, are, we died in him, and therefore satisfy God's wrath against sin. We rose in him, and therefore we are spiritually alive and will live forever. But we also worship in him. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever worshipped perfectly. He is the only human being to worship. You ever notice, you read the Gospels, how often Jesus is involved in worship? Private worship, he is routinely going out and praying to God. He's routinely, we see times where he sings hymns, and then corporate worship. How many times do we read in the Gospels that he was in the synagogue? On the Sabbath day, this, that, or the other thing happened. He is routinely a part of the corporate worship of God's people. And as the one true perfect human being, he worshipped God perfectly. It is for this reason that, we, that uh, Hebrews talks about the fact that he opened the way to God in his flesh. We can go to God the Father through the Son. The Son is the subject of worship. He is the perfect worshiper. And we are in Him. Which is why our worship is acceptable at all. If it's not done in Him, it is not acceptable worship. And what of the Spirit? You know, we see that the, uh, John, uh, Jesus says in John 16, when the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. There it is, one member of the Godhead glorifying another, again. Acts 7, Stephen is dying, and it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and for that reason, he could see the glory of God. The Spirit works in us so that we can see God's glory. And worship it all. And Philippians 3 3 says, We worship by the Spirit of God. So, God the Father, Son, and Spirit are not only the objects of our worship, the recipients of our worship, they are also the subjects of our worship. It is God who glorifies. It is God the Father who glorifies the Spirit and the Son. It is God the Son who is the perfect worshiper in whom we are acceptable and can worship. It is God the Spirit who enables us, who opens up our hearts and minds that we can offer true, sincere worship. If we are to worship... If the, way we are to, the way we are supposed to worship and whom we are supposed to worship, then we must worship the triune God. And we must worship in the triune God and through him and because of him and carried along by him. Let's see how we did in our little quiz. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? They do not. They do not recognize that God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. It doesn't matter how they might dress up the idol they've created. It doesn't matter what glory they might ascribe to that idol. It doesn't matter what they might call that idol. They might call it God. They might refer to it as great. But it is not 
the true God because it's not a triune God. And therefore, they do not worship the God we worship. We are not taking different paths up the same mountain. We are on roads that are entirely headed in different directions. One is the narrow way, which leads to life. One is the wide way, which leads to destruction. But of Christians and Jews, we even call our God by the same name. But again, they do not recognize Jesus of Nazareth as God the Son incarnate. And because they do not, they cannot be worshiping in truth. They cannot be fulfilling what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well. They do not worship the God we worship. Of course, that is a challenge to us, isn't it? It means that we must be careful about our worship. We must be careful about our doctrine. We must be careful about our understanding of this word of God and what it teaches us about God so that we are always in the process of destroying the idol that we've built in our minds and replacing it with the God of the Bible so that our worship is always growing more pure more holy, more truthful, so that he is pleased with it. It is when we worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we worship through him and in him and by him, that our worship has any hope of being worship that is offered in spirit and in truth. Jesus went on to close out his time with the woman at the well and to say to her, it is such worshipers that the Father seeks. Let us be those kinds of worshipers. Let us be men and women, sheep of the fold, who know the true God. We know him as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, work in us that we would understand the truth of the Trinity and that that understanding would would seep into the rest of our being and permeate who we are and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We would worship you in the way that you deserve, in the way that you have revealed yourself, that we would recognize you Father, Son, and Spirit as worthy of our affections and actions. We pray this by the power of the Spirit in us through Jesus our mediator to God our Heavenly Father.